Open your gates, Lebanon, and fire will consume your cedars. Wail, Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, the glorious trees are destroyed. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the stately forest has fallen. Listen to the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is destroyed. Listen to the roar of young lions, for the thickets of the Jordan are destroyed. The Lord my God says this, Shepherd the flock intended for slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them, but are not punished. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, because I have become rich. Even their own shepherds have no compassion for them. Indeed, I will no longer have compassion on the inhabitants of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Instead, I will turn everyone over to his neighbor and his king. They will devastate the land, and I will not rescue it from their hand. So I shepherded the flock intended for slaughter, the oppressed of the flock. I took two staffs, calling one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds. I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Then I said, I will no longer shepherd you. Let what is dying die, and let what is perishing perish. Let the rest devour each other's flesh. Next I took my staff called Favor and cut it in two, annulling the covenant I had made with all the peoples. It was annulled on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, thirty pieces of silver. Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. This magnificent price, I was valued by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I cut into my second staff, Union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. The Lord also said to me, Take the equipment of a foolish shepherd. I am about to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are perishing, and he will not seek the lost or heal the broken. He will not sustain the healthy, but he will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May a sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm wither away and his right eye go completely blind. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, how we are in need of a fresh word from your mouth. How prone we are to being misled by the siren song of the world of rebellion against your rule. So as we bow before you, acknowledging our sin and our weakness and our temptation to listen to other voices directing us, other than the voice of the Good Shepherd speaking to us in Scripture, we now cry out to you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to take this portion of your own word and with power apply it to the changing of our lives and the praise of Jesus' name. Would you fix our attention on Christ and give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to the church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know what it's like to experience good leadership? Maybe you worked for a boss that cared well for his staff. He coached you, you trained you, equipped you, he led his team well. Or maybe you worked for a poor leader. Team morale was bad. 
Nobody thrived except for maybe a, a few favorites. There was constant drama, a lack of organization, no accountability. Everyone looked out for themselves. I've experienced both of those scenarios. Good and bad leadership is part of life under the sun. We're familiar with it. We like having good leaders. We suffer under poor ones. Maybe you've suffered under poor leadership yourself. Maybe it was a parent, a spouse, a teacher, an employer. And you carry those wounds with you every day. It's hard to trust anyone because of the hurt, the injury, the trauma that you've experienced. But there's another reality that reveals something about ourselves. And it's the rejection of good leadership. This happens at every level of authority in this world. How often do citizens disobey laws and disrespect civil authorities? How often do children disobey their parents? How often do we hear of churches that have chewed up and run off faithful pastors? Why do we reject good leadership? We know why we reject bad leaders, but why good ones? The Bible diagnoses our condition. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, believed the serpent's lie, that they could reject God's rule over them and exercise self-rule. And they sinned against God and sin entered the world. And ever since, we are born into this world kicking and screaming spiritually against God and against his rule over us. Uh, One brother shared with me this week something his adult son said as a child. I'm angry at God for being in charge. What a profound admission that is. And the story of the Bible, indeed the story of all human history, is the drama of God seeking to shepherd his people with his tender rule and care, and his people sinfully rejecting and despising the Lord as their shepherd. We see this drama play out in our passage this morning. Zechariah 11 is one of those passages that makes me glad that New Testament preachers are not like Old Testament prophets. Now, like some prophets before him, Zechariah is called to preach and then to accompany his preaching with drama. It's the sort of thing that gives me nightmares, right? Drama, the idea of a skit. But drama like this was part of the prophetic repertoire. And on this occasion, God's word came to God's people accompanied by symbolic dramatic action. Zechariah enacts a little play with three scenes, each of them quite sobering as he once again confronts the false shepherds of God's people with their sin. They who ought to have pastored the flock abuse them instead. And so the prophet steps in with dramatic words and dramatic actions that leave us in no doubt about God's righteous judgment. And yet, at the same time, the prophet's drama reveals judgment on the sheep who reject the good shepherd. They will receive a worthless shepherd instead, one who doesn't care for them and will leave them languishing and to die in the end. So here's the main point that I want us to see this morning. If you reject the good shepherd, you will be deserted, perish, and die. But if you receive the good shepherd, you will be protected, cherished, and live. That's what I want us to believe this morning. And so if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 11. We'll look at this passage in three acts. Our play begins with a song, an overture, hinting at themes to come. In Act 1, we see a deriding dirge of coming judgment. And then the drama begins, and Zechariah takes up the part of a shepherd of God's people. In Act 2, we see a dramatic rejection of the prophetic shepherd. And the drama concludes with Zechariah switching roles 
In Act 3, we see a dramatic installment of the foolish shepherd. My prayer for you is that you will not only reject false shepherds, but also reject your own attempts to self-rule and instead receive and rest upon the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, and gladly submit to his gracious rule. So let's look at Act 1, a deriding dirge of coming judgment, verses 1 through 3. Open your gates, Lebanon, and fire will consume your cedars. Wail, Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. The glorious trees are destroyed. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the stately forest has fallen. Listen to the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is destroyed. Listen to the roar of young lions, for the thickets of the Jordan are destroyed. So Act 1 sees Zechariah singing, and like many a good play, Zechariah's drama opens with this chorus. Verses 1 through 3 contain a dirge, right? A wailing song, a lament that's used at funerals and mourning ceremonies. And he's to lift up his voice and call others as well into this wailing song. But as the prophet sings his lament, he's calling the false shepherds of Judah to join him. They're to begin singing, notice, their own funeral dirge ahead of time, as it were. Because their destruction is sure and swiftly approaching. Verses 1 and 2, notice he calls them to wail as he depicts this terrible forest fire raging through the trees in the forest of Lebanon. The, the cypress and the cedars and the oaks are, are blackened and charred and they fall to the ground. And this is how God's wrath will fall on those who have not cared for the flock, but instead only cared for themselves. They've, they've preyed upon the flock for their own benefit and good, in verse 3, the wailing there is really the sound of the wailing of the shepherds, right? Because their glory, all that they've built, is ruined. God is going to judge them. Those placed in leadership over God's people will be held to account. It's a terrible thing to be entrusted with the care of God's people, as these men were. They were, they were their shepherds, and instead of protecting them, guiding them, loving them, they neglected them and abused them for their own gain. It's a terrible thing. As a church, we ought to examine carefully men as to their character and gifting as potential pastors here at First Baptist. And to all the men considering the office and to all the pastors currently serving in the ministry of shepherds, including myself, we ought to be sure not to miss this sober warning. To be called to the office and ministry of a shepherd and yet to treat God's flock with indifference or worse, to use them as means for our own personal gain that is to expose yourself to the, fire, the forest fire of God's judgment and divine condemnation. James 3 verse 1 reminds us, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. There's a sober warning for the shepherds here. Well, that's Act 1, a deriding dirge of coming judgment. And then Act 2, by far the largest portion of our text, where we'll spend most of our time, begins in verse 4 and runs through verse 14. A dramatic rejection of the prophetic shepherd. There's the Lord's declaration, verses 4 through 6, and then the prophet's dramatization in verses 7 through 14. Let's look at the declaration. The Lord my God says this, shepherd the flock intended for slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them, but are not punished. Those who sell them say, bless me the Lord, because I have become rich. Even their own shepherds have no compassion for them. Indeed, I will no longer have compassion on the inhabitants of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Instead, I will turn everyone over to his neighbor and his king. 
They will devastate the land, and I will not rescue it from their hand. So Zechariah's funeral lament is now concluded. The Lord commands him to play the role of a good shepherd among the sheep. God commands Zechariah to engage in a role play in order to make his point in a very public way before the people. Now, probably the most famous of these prophetic role plays was Hosea. You know, remember that? The Lord told him to marry a prostitute to show what it was like for God to be married to Israel. All the prophets received similar instructions. God ordered Isaiah to go around naked and barefoot for three years to symbolize judgment. Ezekiel lay on his side for over a year to symbolize Israel's sin, represent the the coming siege of Jerusalem. And then here in verse 4, God says to Zechariah, shepherd the flock intended for slaughter. Now, these returned exiles of Judah, this flock here, they've been doomed to slaughter, right? That's how their leaders think of them. Not as a flock to be defended fiercely, cared for tenderly, but as prey, fit only for the slaughterhouse. The leaders are depicted here as tradesmen who buy and sell them in the open market. And they're quick, aren't they, to use pious-sounding language, right? Bless be the Lord, because I have become rich. But the prophet says they're profiting from the weaknesses of the vulnerable, and they're cloaking their greed with false piety. Right? They have no compassion on the flock. They don't care for them at all. They're using them for their own ends. This is, this is an ugly scene. You know, compassionless shepherds still oppress God's sheep in our day. But one author defines spiritual abuse this way. Spiritual abuse is when a spiritual leader, such as a pastor, elder, head of a Christian organization, wields his position of spiritual authority in such a way that he manipulates, domineers, bullies, and intimidates those under him as a means of accomplishing what he takes to be biblical and or spiritual goals. Now, to be clear, the Bible affirms the proper role of authorities in the home, in the church, and in the world. The Bible is not anti-authority, nor does it try to eliminate such authorities. However, at the same time, and because of the fallen nature of man, the Bible repeatedly warns against the misuse of authority. And so, sadly, spiritual abuse is still a, a painful reality, isn't it? I've witnessed it firsthand. I've seen a pastor scream at his people for not knowing the Bible as well as he thought they should. I've seen a senior pastor try to fire an associate pastor because he didn't like how much influence that pastor had accrued among the people. I've seen denominational leaders try to tarnish the reputations of other faithful servants so they could replace them with one of their buddies. Maybe you've suffered under compassionless shepherds in prior churches. It's crushing. It's oppressive. In 1 Peter 5, the apostle Peter reminds us how pastors should care well for the flock. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseen out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's what a faithful shepherd looks like. But verse 6 tells us actually that the flock generally is itself not a whole lot better than the shepherds. Indeed, I will no longer have compassion on the inhabitants of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Instead, I will turn everyone over to his neighbor and his king, 
They will devastate the land, and I will not rescue it from their hand. And the shepherds and the flock have gone badly astray. The majority of the sheep, it seems, now have the kind of shepherds that they deserve. This is a shocking turn of events. In chapter 10, right, we saw this last week, the Lord promised to have compassion on his people and provide a good shepherd for them. Even the opening verses, right, in our text, spoke of judgment on unfaithful shepherds. And yet the the sign act that's going to follow in the next verses will make clear the reason for this reversal. The flock have despised and rejected the good shepherd the Lord has sent, and they will face the consequences. Now, there's some debate as to what events specifically are in view here. Some understand this chapter, this drama, this play, as representing the future, especially the rejection of Jesus. Others see it as describing tensions within Zechariah's own community in his own day. Still others see it as portraying the past, right? Explaining how Israel rejected the Lord as shepherd and how the kingdom was divided and Israel was sent into the exile and their whole land was devastated. So which is it? I think that the Lord, as the divine author of scripture and of all of history, who knows the end from the beginning, is actually doing all three. He's using Zechariah and the rejection he experiences in his own day by his own people to explain the spiritual realities that led the people into exile in the first place, as well as to highlight a pattern in Israel's history that will continue into the future and culminate in Israel's rejection of the Messiah. And it's this repeated pattern of rejection that finally elicits these tragic words, I will no longer have compassion. These are chilling words to hear from the Lord, but they remind us we can never take God's grace for granted. We cannot simply presume that God will forgive. It's his job. The same God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, is also the same God who will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of iniquity. And so if we spurn God's gift of a good shepherd, then he will leave us to the consequences that we so justly deserve. And the reason for the Lord's lack of compassion on his people becomes clear as this sign act unfolds. Let's look at the dramatization now in verses 7 through 14. Zechariah takes on the role now of shepherding. Read verses 7 through 8 with me. So I shepherded the flock intended for slaughter, the oppressed of the flock. I took two staffs, calling one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds. I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So as verse 7 makes clear, not everyone in the flock had rejected God's shepherd. The reference you might have in some translation to sheep traders is likely incorrect. It's, It's not the sheep traders, but those among the flock who have been afflicted, oppressed, the faithful remnant, and who for the sake of their loyalty to the Lord their God, They've been made the butt of the opposition and the insults and the predations of the shepherds and of the other sheep alike. And Zechariah is here deployed He's send, to stand up for them, right? these oppressed ones, these vulnerable among the flock, this faithful remnant, to be to them a true shepherd. They've been neglected, abused, preyed upon. Zechariah is to be a faithful shepherd to them instead. And in particular, notice the symbols of his office. He, He's to take up the two staffs used by the shepherds of the day. 
You remember Psalm 23, right? Your, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It was normal practice for a shepherd to have two staffs. Here they are now as the great emblems of the shepherd's faithfulness and his attentiveness to the flock. One of them would have been used to defend the flock from predators. And the other would have been more like a, a shepherd's crook to protect them, to guide them, to see to their welfare. And so Zechariah takes these two staffs, symbols of his role, his commitment to the shepherd, these vulnerable, afflicted members of God's people, and he names them, he names one of them favor, and then he names the other one union. Right? The staff called favor is a reminder to the flock, the covenant people of God, that they, they will live and grow and flourish only under the favor and the grace of the Lord who shepherds them. And Zechariah is sent to them to minister that grace and that favor. And the staff called Union spoke about the hope of a reunited people of God. Right? Israel, prior to their exile in Babylon, had been a divided people, right? split into northern and southern kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And there had been persistent strife between them throughout the years. But the great promise that all the people of God will one day live together in, in unity, in union, is symbolized here by the shepherd in their midst and the staff that he carries. Right? So the Lord, through this prophet, Zechariah, this shepherd in their midst, will care for them, and the great fruit of his care will be the union of his people. And so with these two staffs in hand, Zechariah gets to work. He starts tending the sheep, shepherding them, ministering God's favor, helping them live out and experience unity amongst themselves. And as we're saying here for a moment, uh, that these two goals are always in view in faithful ministry of a shepherd, right? Twin fruits of faithful pastoral service. The grace, the favor of God upon the afflicted flock, and visible, heartfelt union between them. There is no union between church members that does not arise from the favor of God upon his church. And there is little of the favor of God on display in a church that's wracked by division. And so a faithful shepherd's ministry pursues these twin goals for the sake of the afflicted lambs of Christ's flock. So again, brother pastors, elders, you are to be shepherds of the grace and favor of God, caring for the afflicted lambs of the flock of Christ's church, seeking to promote always our unity, first with our Savior and then with one another. Now in this case, Zechariah's shepherding ministry extended even to the removal of from among the flock of three false shepherds. Again, verse 8, in one month, I got rid of three shepherds. Now, we don't know exactly who he's referencing here. Again, depending on your view, he could have been referring to the, the prophets, priests, and the kings before the exile. And in Jesus' day, it might refer to the, the, shepherd, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. In Zechariah's day, we don't know. But here's an example, like the main point of his, of his commitment to care for the oppressed people of God, that he would even oppose and even achieve a measure of success in removing three false shepherds so that he could, the, the flock could be cared for and not suffer under them any longer. Now, in the New Covenant age of the church, right, it's the congregation, the gathered members, not the pastors, whom Christ has given authority to remove members and other officers. And nevertheless, right, church discipline is still not a pleasant thing. Removing those who endanger the flock is hard. And in our culture where niceness and avoiding giving offense at all costs seems to dominate so many of our interactions, we often get quite uncomfortable with this idea, don't we? Of discipline, of removal. 
Zechariah, Zechariah reminds us that dealing with sin and with those who serve sin, in this case dealing with false shepherds, is in fact an act of love. Right? It's an act of love for the afflicted sheep. One of the ways he protects and advances their unity is by rooting out these divisive and uh, abusive false shepherds. So Zechariah was a diligent and faithful shepherd among the people. But sadly, it didn't last. Because instead of a, a positive relationship developing between the shepherd and his sheep, eventually the sin of the whole flock as a whole gets the better of him. Verse 8, I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. The sheep turned on the shepherd. The people did not want a godly regime, despite all of the benefits to themselves. How revealing this is, isn't it, of our nature? The people approved of godless leaders rather than godly ones. Why would they do that? It's because they didn't want godly standards. Because they didn't want to give up their own cherished sins. This is what we ought to expect from people who have no knowledge of God. Right? Even those who were born into the heritage of God's people. People like that are not going to look favorably on an agenda like Zechariah's. However beneficial it really is. And so Zechariah, the, the shepherd representing the good shepherd... The role of God himself among his people. He responds how? Washing his hands of them. Verse 9. Then I said, I will no longer shepherd you. Let what is dying die. Let what is perishing perish. Let the rest devour each other's flesh. It's a chilling sentence that he gives. If the flock rejects the shepherds, the shepherds give them over to the life they choose. Right? They shake the dust off of their feet. And the flock devours itself. They get the shepherds they deserve. False shepherds who turn on the sheep. And of course, this terrible picture of life without the good shepherd became graphically and literally true in the centuries to follow. According to the ancient historian Josephus, during the Roman siege of Jerusalem under the emperor Titus in AD 70, the starving and desperate people did in fact turn to cannibalism. And those who were left, as Zechariah put it, they, they devoured each other's flesh, having rejected the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus himself. And so to symbolize God's judgment, Zechariah now breaks the first staff, favor. Verse 10. Next, I took my staff called favor and cut it in two, annulling the covenant I had made with all the peoples. It was annulled on that day. And so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Right? Without the obligations of a relationship with God, they could no longer enjoy the benefits of God. His restraint on the nations would be removed so that they could freely attack the Jews. Right? This, is, this is what I think is meant by his covenant with the nations, the peoples. God had kept them at bay, but now that restriction is over. And as verse 11 suggests, it must have been with heavy hearts that the, the few godly sheep watched as the broken halves of Zechariah's staff fell to the ground. Right? They knew that it was the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord given through Moses, the promised judgment spoken in Deuteronomy 28 for covenant disobedience is why they knew they would now suffer as a nation. Now the people will be exposed to fresh waves of invasion and oppression. Now there's no longer the safety of shepherds who care for the flock, but now there is a life exposed to the attack of enemies. We should be careful in applying this scenario to our own church in time because there are important ways in which 
The Old Testament Israel is different from the New Covenant Church. It's sadly true that many Christian churches today have turned away from the Bible and over time become either dead or irrelevant or wholly corrupt. Jesus promised, I will build my church. But that was a promise to the church universal, not to any particular local church. And Jesus will remove the lampstand of any church that forsakes him and gives itself to idols. So First Baptist Church, remember your first love. Hold fast to God's word. Don't turn to false shepherds. Follow Jesus. This must have been a very painful episode in Zechariah's life as well. He, he had seen so much blessing. You remember those wonderful visions he had saw at the beginning of our book. But now judgment awaited the people who had turned away from the Lord. Surely it was painful to God as well, yet it was no surprise to him. Indeed, it's clear God intended this role play to symbolize something that had already happened spiritually. And it's a severe judgment when God gives sinners exactly what they want. People want a life of sin, and God judges them by allowing them this lifestyle with its wages of death. You read in Romans 1, right? God gave them over, over and over. That's Immorality is itself a judgment from God. Brothers and sisters, in in the face of advancing darkness around us, we must be ever more eager to stand before our generation with the gospel of grace and truth that it so desperately needs. Well, the people who are apparently not at all moved by the prophet's words pay him for his time with 30 pieces of silver and send him on his way. Look at verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. This magnificent price, I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. Well, here are a few profoundly important verses dealing with the price Zechariah was paid for his work. They weigh out, notice, 30 pieces of silver for him. 30 pieces of silver was the prescribed amount for a slave who had been killed, Exodus 21. These were slave wages, right? the most contemptuous salary a person could be given. Zechariah mockingly calls it a magnificent price. This is all he's worth to them. This is all the shepherding care of the Lord. Their covenant God is worth to these people. And so the Lord tells Zechariah, throw it to the potter, which Zechariah does. He rejects the pay, unwilling to give money to the corrupt religious leaders, so he casts it instead to the potter, who had his shop in those precincts. Now we read these words, and I hope already that there are bells ringing. Suddenly now the whole drama Zechariah depicts is lifted to a new level. Now we see him not simply as a model shepherd, right? A pastor of the afflicted flock, instructing us on the challenges and calling of a faithful pastor. Now we see him enacting a passion play, don't we? Centuries earlier, the beloved son, Joseph, was betrayed by his brothers and sold for 20 pieces of silver. And now these two verses link these events to what would happen over 500 years later, when another beloved son was sent by God to be rejected by his own people. This shepherd was God's own beloved son, the great and final prophet of Israel. He fulfilled what was written in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. 
His life was also priced by the religious leaders at 30 pieces of silver, paid to Judas Iscariot for his betrayal. This was the magnificent price at which he was valued by them. The people said Zechariah's worth at 30 pieces of silver. It was an insult because the shepherding ministry was a symbol of the infinitely valuable shepherd care of Almighty God. Who can put a price on that? And when Jesus, the good shepherd, came, that's exactly what the false shepherds of his day did for him, wasn't it? They set his value at 30 pieces of silver, paid them to Judas for his betrayal, and then when Judas threw the coins back at at, at the chief priests, they fulfilled what was written in Zechariah by using it to buy the potter's field as a burial ground instead of placing it in the temple treasury. Matthew 27, verses 9 to 10, quotes Jeremiah and this text from Zechariah as being directly fulfilled in these moments. Well, if it was painful for Zechariah to be rejected, how much more so for Jesus, God incarnate, to be rejected by the people he had loved so well. This is the nation to whom God had shown such patient mercy for generations. Jesus had spent his ministry teaching, healing these very people. One of the dramatic scenes of Jesus last week in Jerusalem took place at the site of that very temple where Zechariah himself was rejected and later killed. Jesus knew he would be rejected and killed in that line of rejected prophets. He knew that a cross awaited him, that the Jews would detest him as a true shepherd, as Zechariah foreshown. Jesus lamented not merely his own rejection, but also the salvation these people thereby lost, right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and save you, but you were not willing. See your houses left to you desolate. The next passage in Matthew's gospel begins by saying, Jesus left the temple. As Zechariah's role play had forecast, God's patience had come to an end. The Lord of glory left Jerusalem's temple. All who did not go with him, who did not choose Jesus over the false wicked shepherds, all except the disciples who had followed him in faith, everyone was left behind. They were left behind to receive that judgment that was due their sin, the condemnation for rejecting the Savior God has so mercifully sent. A few days later, as Jesus carried a wooden cross up the hill of Calvary, he turned to some Jewish women who were weeping. Daughters of Jerusalem, he said, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. His disciples were going to receive eternal life. But condemnation awaited all those who rejected him, the true and good shepherd that they sinfully crucified in their unwillingness to submit to God. The fact that this drama points us to Jesus should remind us of two vital truths. First, all whose hearts have been reconciled to God through the good shepherd's rejection are called to be shaped by what he has done for them. He was rejected by men that we might be accepted by God. He was betrayed that we might be reconciled. He was hated that we might know his love. And it should not be surprising when God calls us to experience rejection and betrayal so that his grace might touch the hearts and lives of others as well. At some point, everyone who believes in Christ must go through times when we are rejected and left all alone. It's part of following our rejected shepherd. And instead of becoming hardened toward those who reject us, 
and more importantly, toward the good shepherd we represent. Our hearts should break for these people. The consequences of rejecting the good shepherd, always disastrous. So as we look at our own hearts, might we never turn away from our good shepherd, always be willing to follow wherever he leads, even when that means into the crucible of rejection for his namesake. And yet even in our rejection, we know our suffering and rejection is part of God's larger redemptive purposes, isn't it? Perhaps it will be used by the Lord to give others a picture of what our Redeemer went through on our behalf. Perhaps it will be used providentially to position us for further gospel work in the lives of others. Perhaps it will be used to draw us closer to Him, to know the heart of Him who was rejected on our behalf. But whatever the greater purposes of God in those times, even if we never come to know His designs for them, we are reassured that as we follow Jesus into places of rejection and betrayal, we will also be renewed once again in His acceptance, reconciliation, and love. Another truth we must believe is that God's judgment need not fall on us. That the wrath depicted in verses 1 to 3, and again here in verses 9 through 14, it's as real now as it is re- was real then. But we need to remember that God's wrath fell on Jesus, that it might not fall upon us. In the midst of the darkness of threat and judgment is a bright, clear ray of gospel light offered to us all, holding out to you hope and pardon and forgiveness. The ultimate irony is that the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus, was devoured and destroyed by the flock he came to save. And because he was, sinners don't die when Jesus takes their place. Wrath is diverted from you to him. The shepherd becomes the lamb who was slain so that the sheep of his flock and the people of his pasture might live forever. But what about those who reject the good shepherd? Look at verse 14. Then I cut into my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. That breaking of the second staff announces the brotherhood between Judah and Israel is now severed. The people were going to reject the shepherd in whom all the hopes of unity rested, then they were essentially foreclosing the possibility that there might be a reunification of all the tribes too. They'd be turning their backs on the glorious promise of fulfillment of reunification pictured in Zechariah 9 and 10, which we saw in the past couple weeks. It would be a reversal of the opening promise of this book, right? Instead of return to me and I will return to you, it's as though the Lord says, reject me and I will reject you. Well, that's act two, a dramatic rejection of the prophetic shepherd. And now we come to act three, a dramatic installment of the foolish shepherd. Now Zechariah is to play a very different character. Look at verses 15 through 17. The Lord also said to me, Take the equipment of a foolish shepherd. I am about to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are perishing, and he will not seek the lost or heal the broken. He will not sustain the healthy, but he will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May a sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm wither away and his right eye go completely blind. Since the people want nothing to do with the good shepherd, the Lord gives them what they want um, and what they deserve. A worthless shepherd. The prophet is to symbolize 
an anti-shepherd, if you will, whom the Lord will raise up. He will disregard the flock. He will not rescue the perishing. He will not care for the dying. He will not seek and save the lost. He will not leave the 99 to find the missing one. He will not heal the broken or support the healthy. He will not be known as the shepherd and overseer of their souls. He will care nothing for their well-being. And instead, he will devour them. He will ravage them for his own benefit. He'll be like a beast that tears off their limbs and feeds on their meat. Jesus warned that there are thieves and robbers who come only to steal and kill and destroy. He told us there will be hired hands that don't really care for the sheep. They're only interested in personal gain. And when the wolves come, they will desert the flock to its danger. They will not promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. But they'll desert the flock whenever it's convenient. Such is the fate of a flock that rejects the good shepherd to do whatever they please. They get what they deserve. And verse 17 ends the whole play, similar to the way it began, right, with a song. And this time it's an imprecation, a song of woe, pronouncing judgment on the false shepherd that would come and afflict God's people. Even though the Lord will raise up this worthless shepherd to punish his people, he will also bring just judgment on this shepherd for his cruelty. He will cut off the shepherd's arm and blind him, rendering him incompetent to rule any longer. History is littered with instances precisely of what Zechariah is describing, right? Both great and small, local and global, we don't have to list them. When we don't want the rule and care of the good shepherd, we run to liars and cheats who deceive us and enslave us. And one day, the scriptures tell us that that long line of foolish shepherds will find ultimate embodiment in one the scriptures describe as the lawless one, the Antichrist who is yet to come. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 10, The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working, with every kind of miracle, with signs and wonders serving the lie, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. And yet, even he will be destroyed in God's time. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. And so Zechariah's point is is clear. It's simply that there are two shepherds. The good shepherd who takes the place of his flock and lays down his life for a sheep. And there are false shepherds of our own choosing who always desert the flock and prey upon our weakness. Which will you choose? Which will you have to rule over you? Which one will care for you? Will you choose the good shepherd who gave himself for you? Or will you run to liars and thieves and robbers and hirelings who will desert you to the wolves, to false prophets and foolish shepherds who will use you and abuse you? This passage was a sharp warning to the Jews that rejecting the true shepherd would bring disaster on their heads. And yet Zechariah's prophecy will be fulfilled with terrible accuracy. Jesus is truly the good shepherd, sent to earth to shepherd the flock, otherwise destined to destruction, his rebellious people. He came to his own sheep, the Jews, but his own people did not receive him. He came to bring the Gentiles, too, into his flock, but the Jews and Gentiles conspired together to reject and crucify him. At his greatest hour of need, his own disciples abandoned him and fled, while Judas, one of the twelve, betrayed him. And if Jesus is the true good shepherd, what will be the fate of those who reject and despise him? They will hear the most fearsome declaration that God can make. I will not be your shepherd. 
and I will not have compassion on you. Such a rejection of the Messiah by the Jews of Jesus' own day led to that terrible destruction in Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. And yet even that terrible holocaust was a minor tragedy in comparison with the eternal judgment that awaits all those who reject the Christ, Jew or Gentile alike. You see, the truth is that again and again, when we reject the only shepherd who can save us and care for us, the one who administers the favor of God and gives us unity among ourselves, when we don't want him, we get the shepherd we deserve instead. Throughout history, over and over, time and time again, we, when people run from God, run from the Lord Jesus as our true shepherd. We turn instead to false teachers, to evil rulers, to tyrants and deceivers. So take heed this morning. Just as Jesus came to Jerusalem, so he comes to every man and every woman here today. He offers you salvation, forgiveness by his death for your sins. But he also warns us against the consequences of rejecting him as Savior and Lord and Shepherd. Understand that if you reject Jesus, you will cause more than sorrow and sadness in his own loving heart. Understand that you will have rejected God. You will have rejected the grace he has offered in love. You will not be able to give the excuse that God withheld his grace from you. He has sent his son to be your savior and good shepherd. It is not a harsh God that you will have rejected, one who delights in anger and is unworthy of your love. No, it's a God revealed in grace and truth in Jesus Christ. So the warning is this. If, if you reject the grace and mercy of God, if you refuse the savior he has sent, God must then reject you in turn. If you choose sin in his pleasures, you cannot escape sin's judgment. Jesus spoke of this terrible prospect in his parable of the tenants, speaking of the people who first rejected God's prophets and finally rejected his son, crucifying men in their unbelief. Jesus said, God will completely destroy those terrible men. Do not, I implore you, be numbered among them. Do not enlist for that eternal judgment when God so eagerly offers you forgiveness and life eternal through faith in Jesus Christ. And do not think that you can safely wait for no rejection of God's Son is safe. No one knows when will be his last chance for him to be saved. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Friends, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Right? Like the prophet Zechariah, who was not only despised and rejected, but eventually murdered by the Jews between the sanctuary and the altar. Jesus was despised and rejected, put to death, betrayed and crucified for his own people. And for them and for all who reject Christ, the cross is the emblem of their condemnation. But there are others, a multitude beyond counting, who look upon the good shepherd with gladness, who hear his voice with delight, who go forth with him into the flock that he gathers for eternal life. For these, the cross is the emblem of salvation, because there the good shepherd laid down his life for the forgiveness of their sins. This is the message of the cross, a warning of the greatest importance, but also the message of a God full of compassion, a Savior worthy of our devotion and trust, a salvation freely offered to all who will come in faith, and a call for you to hear and believe and be saved. Friends, the main point of Zechariah 11 is clear. If you reject the good shepherd, you will be deserted, perish, and die. 
But if you receive the good shepherd, you'll be protected, cherished, and live. That's, that's his message. That's the question we're confronted with here. Under whose watch care will you live? What kind of shepherd do you want? God will give you the shepherd you choose. Some of you today may well be wandering lost sheep. The good shepherd is seeking you. He's calling you. He wants to bring you into his fold. Why choose the predations of counterfeit shepherds when the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep longs to rescue you and make you his? Won't you receive him today? If you do, he will protect you. He will cherish you. And he will shepherd you every day of your life, both now and forever with him in glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful to you that we have a shepherd in Jesus who does not desert his flock, but who dies for the afflicted lambs of his flock, who lays down his life for us. Help us to hear his voice and to follow him. Lord, if there be any here today that up to now have rejected him, stand under your just judgment. May they also hear his gracious voice today and receive him as their good shepherd. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.